Hello there, I'm Dee Reddy and welcome to Inside Intercom. On this week's episode, we are delighted to welcome Will Larson back to the show. He last joined us back in 2018 when he was leading Foundation Engineering in Stripe. Since then, he's joined CAM as Chief Technology Officer and has somehow carved out time to write his second book, Staff Engineer, Leadership Beyond the Management Track. It's a fantastic read, which is pitched as a pragmatic look at attaining and operating in staff engineering roles, building on the lived experiences of people who've already done it. In today's episode, he chats to Intercom's Principal Systems Engineer, Brian Scanlon, about this latest release, and he also shares some actionable advice from it that will, I think, be relevant to anyone wishing to progress in their career. They also chat through Will's writing process and how he went about crowdsourcing experiences for this book. It's a really interesting chat, so let's head over to the studio and hear from Brian and Will. Will, we're delighted to have you back on the show today for your second appearance on Inside Intercom. So you last chatted to us way back in 2018 when you shared your insights on engineering and infrastructure management. So for anyone who missed that discussion, do you want to jump back a bit and maybe share a little bit about what you've been doing with your career to date? Yeah, would, would, would love to. So I think when we, we chatted um, at that time, which feels like a long time ago, but, but I guess is, is really not that, that long ago, was really focused on this idea of infrastructure management and was working on getting together my first book, An Elegant Puzzle, and so thinking quite, quite a bit there. And since then, I hit my four years at Stripe and joined Calm um, about a little bit over a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago. As, as their CTO. So now I've been both the opportunity to kind of go change my focus a little bit from infrastructure engineering, which I think is some of the most interesting work that, that folks get to do, but also a little bit decoupled from the business itself sometimes to thinking a little bit more holistically and also happen to think a little bit about this problem of like, what is a staff engineer? So I think on the engineering management side, there's a, a pretty well understood career ladder. And I think Camille's book, uh, The Manager's Path, is like fantastic for that. There's a bunch of others, great manager books. But what do you actually do as a staff engineer? Like, what what is a staff engineer? This is a problem as I started trying to give advice to folks. It's like, well, of course I know what a staff engineer is, but I didn't actually know what a staff engineer was. And so I spent some time um, talking to folks about what they've done, learning from them, and then trying to uh, bash that all up into um, some, some learnings. Great. So you mentioned your book. So you, this brings us pretty neatly up to your writing work. So since we last spoke to you, you've published uh, not one but two books. And so how do you approach your writing projects? And like, do you want, actually want to be a writer when you grow up? <laughs> or does this whole tech career thing, is it supporting the writing? Or do you think you have to be a practitioner in tech to do the kind of writing that you're doing? Yeah, that's a great question. It's funny. So my sister is a actual author. My sister is a graphic novelist. She writes um, graphic novels. She sells graphic novels. And her career is like centered on this idea of like writing, illustrating and selling these books. And that sounds incredibly stressful to me because I, I, I don't know how you actually sell enough books of the right sort to and she's been on like the New York Times like the seller list. She, she, she's done like real work. Um, I'm just... Uh, faking it a bit relative to like what I think a, a real professional author is doing. Because for me, I get to focus on problems that I'm really excited about, learn a bunch about them personally, and then try to turn that into a book versus, you know, the, the profit motive in starting there, which sounds um, 
extremely threatening because I, I think my books have done fairly well. But if I was trying to live off my books, I would be doing uh, very, very poorly indeed. So your most recent title has been described as a pragmatic look at attaining and operating in staff engineering roles and staff plus roles, building on the lived experience of folks who are doing the job, you know? So why do you feel that it needed to be written and who are you writing it for? So when I first moved into management, it was at Dig. And Dig is, I think, like a iconic brand and a really amazing product in, in its time. But also, like, when I became a manager at Dig, it's, it was uh, a failing company where all the other managers had, had quit. And so I was the only manager. And it was definitely didn't know what I was doing. And so it was a very intimidating moment. And going from that moment where I was managing folks, but utterly clueless and unprepared. It was really the center of my first book, um, An Elegant Puzzle. Like, what do you actually do? Um, How do you actually make some of these challenging managerial decisions? And then you think about um, staff engineering, and it should be a totally different situation where every staff engineer I've worked with has had a manager, so that manager should be helping them. Typically, you don't start introducing this role until the company gets to at least like a moderate amount of size, so they should have a, a peer group. But when you actually talk to the staff engineers, like many of them, I think, don't know what their job is, don't know how they're evaluated, aren't sure what they should be focused on, aren't sure like, how they should spend their time. And I think as I talk to more and more of these folks, there, there's like a bit of a crisis where the technology industry is like, oh, we have two, two career paths. You can stay in engineering or you can go into engineering management. But as I talked to more staff engineers, it became clear that we've really underserved folks who want to stay on the engineering path where they just don't know what they should be doing and how they're being evaluated. And you can, I think, in most companies get a a passing performance score by being well-loved. These are professionals who want to do a great job, not just be um, passively good. And they just didn't know what to do. And I think there's one kind of component where you're seeing that, but then there's a the different component where all of a sudden you're you're actually managing and responsible for a bunch of staff engineers and they're asking you questions and you just don't know what the right answer is to a bunch of them. And so I noticed that I just didn't know what to tell folks and it was my responsibility to be supporting their career, but I felt like I, I really couldn't do that very well. And so that's when I wanted to really focus on this problem. How do I do a better job of supporting and helping the the staff engineers that I worked with. One of the most interesting things about the approach to the book was how important the crowdsourcing kind of part was, like getting people to tell their stories and wasn't just part of your research work, it was part of the book as well. Do you think this approach to to writing books in, in tech literature, do you think that's a thing that you can reuse or that should be reused as a common way of maybe exploring different types of roles or maybe different areas in technology that isn't isn't being done at the moment? So I think one of the interesting things about writing a book is that you're kind of, you have a position, you have a set of beliefs about how something should work and how things actually work and what you're writing are are probably like a little bit separate because what's the point of your book if it's purely just describing reality? Like you're sort of trying to describe reality, but also pull the industry in like a certain direction a bit. And so to me, um, when I started this book, I, I had my own experiences working with staff engineers and I'd seen a lot of the challenges of it, but I didn't want to give advice that was wrong based only on what I had seen. Um, and and all, I really wanted like a pragmatic book because I think a lot of the advice that you get if you're a staff engineer or let's say you're a senior engineer and you want to become a staff, I think a lot of the advice you'll get is 
what your manager or what a manager is obligated to tell you, but is it sort of known not to be true. And so a good example of this is like, how do you become a staff engineer? Every company has like a, a series of like points they will kind of tell senior engineers. But often if you follow those points directly, like it will be very challenging to actually become a staff engineer because the company has a, a lot of different challenges, right? Like they need to manage a certain like ratio of staff to non-staff folks for like, um, so they have the right training ratio. So they have the right like budget kind of obligations, et cetera. So you, you can't listen only to what the companies are telling you. Like what you have to listen to the other staff engineers who have actually gotten there and understand their stories as well. In terms of like whether we should do more of these books, it's a good question. I um, I don't know. So one of the interesting things that has happened since I wrote, I started this project maybe around two years ago. And since then, a, a TPM, like a technical program manager has reached out to me like, hey, I, I want to start doing a, a similar project because like, I don't know what a TPM is. And I'm, I've been a TPM for like almost a decade and like no one can tell me what a TPM is. Um, I talked to a staff designer reached out and actually staff.design um, is, a, is a website with like interviews with, with staff designers. And it's like, what, what is a staff designer? What is, does a design have a second career path or do most designers have to become a manager to continue in their career? But, you know, it's not just them. I've had like a product manager. It's like, what does it mean to be a product manager who is not a people manager? Can you actually succeed in that role? And I don't know the answers to most of those. But I do think it's interesting that as the, the industry that we're in gets older, there's lots of folks who are trying to develop themselves without moving into people management. And generally, people like don't know what that looks like, even though we, we've said that we've solved it by offering the second career path. Like in reality, like I think folks still mostly aren't sure how to navigate it. Great. So let's dig into staff engineer a little more deeply. So in the book, you outline four archetypes of staff roles, namely architect, tech lead, solver, and right hand. Could you tell us a little bit more about these, the shapes of them, what they look like in practice? One of the core problems with staff engineers is like, what is a staff engineer? And if you talk to people at like seven different companies, you'll see some overlap, but also a lot of things that don't overlap at all. And I was trying to figure out how do we describe them in a way that acknowledges the fact that different companies have just like different kind of needs. And so you have different staff engineers. And Facebook actually has this idea of kind of, I think, L5 archetypes, which is kind of their, their, their level. And so they've developed this into their own set of kind of representations for what makes sense for them. Um, but as they talk to more different companies, I, I kind of settled on these four in terms of like different ways, different companies have needs that represent the, the role of the staff engineer. And I do think if you look at our industry, there some of these ideas are, are really well understood, but have fallen out of favor. So architects, like when I first started, my first job in the tech industry was at Yahoo. And over like a certain level, I think it was like the, the fourth level, everyone became an architect. And then they were like a senior architect, like a principal architect, then like a senior principal. And like there were like, I think like 14 levels and only the first three were engineers and there were like 11 levels of architects or something. but the idea of architecture has not remained popular because many of the, the the people fulfilling these architect roles like did it in a way that was very top down doesn't represent the, what we've learned about leadership since uh, the industry has kept growing but the work is still there and still needs to happen and so i wanted to think about how do we talk about what these people are doing but in a way that's like a little bit more about decoupling role from from level and that's how i ended up with these four and, and just real quickly 
architect, someone who's usually responsible for a given area. Um, so often going to be a, a peer to like a director or a senior manager, and it's trying to figure out how do we make all the decisions we make on a given area, say databases or, you know, networking, or it could be um, the front end in terms of the UI, UX, or it could be like iOS engineering. It could be like any of these different areas, but a certain area. And it's really thinking about the quality of the code in that area. Tech lead is typically like someone who's like tagged to a specific team and is partnering with them on like whatever they're trying to do. Solvers tend to be reactive to what leadership is really worried about. So for example, hey, there's a GDPR deadline and we haven't done any GDPR work and we're about to be screwed in two months. How do we fix it? And so I think though most companies at a certain size like have teams or collection of individuals who are just like able to pivot to like whatever leadership is really concerned about. It might be reliability, it might be a compliance issue, it might be um, a competitive threat, like whatever. And these folks are real and important, but often like kind of ignored because they don't fit into this like team structure that we typically use to think about larger organizations. And the final one is this like right hand. And I think this is important construct because a lot of companies have folks who are have some random title, like often um, like a staff engineer, but are almost not doing what we'd consider to be like technical work in some ways. Like they're, they're almost doing like the same work that the manager is doing. They have no direct reports. And finding a way to kind of acknowledge that we like see these folks. And so I talked to like Rick Boone at Uber, who's a great example. I talked to Michelle Boo at, at Stripe and who are partnered directly um, with some senior leader and are taking a lot of their leadership tasks. And this is where I think this idea of like management versus leadership gets um, really interesting, where staff engineers are leaders at the companies, whether they're doing any of these different archetypes, but they're not managerial leaders. They're their own different type of like technical leadership. If I look at Intercom, I can definitely see folks probably like myself who are doing the architect kind of role. There's definitely tech leads in our groups, maybe a couple of solvers knocking around as well, but probably we're not big enough yet maybe to have that kind of right-hand person. Do you think there is a, like, in terms of the distribution of these types of archetypes, there's a relationship between the maturity or the, the size of the, the organizations that they're in? I think there's two different things that matter a lot. Um, the first is whether teams like are strong teams or weak teams. Like some companies you talk to, teams are really central, like work belongs to teams. Um, people join teams. There's a manager who like organizes the team. Some team companies you talk to, like teams are actually like, quite weak, where they're more like people like flit in to like work on a team, work on it, then like flit out. Like when you talk like who owns our um our messaging system, you're like, well, actually Ellen owns it. <laughs> and it's it's not like the team that Ellen's on, it's like Ellen individually is like somehow owning this entire technical system. And I think solvers primarily exist in this like second world where they're like kind of weak teams and just different companies solve problems different ways. Most companies, as they grow, start to have a strong team concept just because it's like incredibly hard to run an organization with like 300 people without teams as like a bit of an abstraction. But some companies go quite quite a long ways before they have teams that are, are strong. And typically, um, it's only when you hire like a strong managerial layer that you start having strong teams. The, the right-hand construct, to, to your point, I think I've seen typically when engineering gets over a thousand, like there, there are some companies that roll it out a little bit earlier, but, but often it's like a, a sign that your structure is actually like not working that well. Um, but typically, by the time you have a thousand engineers, like you'll start to see a few people operating this role, even if they're not labeled this way. And by the time you start to have like many thousands, like there's there's probably like quite a few folks operating this way, but they, they might be called um, literally anything. And so actually finding them can be a little bit challenging. 
So moving on to being effective at this staff role, certainly there's lots of different shapes and people should be playing to their own strengths and what really is important to the organization at the time. But there's some common pitfalls you identified in the book that might blow people off course, make them less effective in the role. Could you go through those for us maybe? I think one of the, the core challenges of like leadership roles is like early in your career, like you're like, you know, the most important thing is getting this migration done or launching this product feature. And like someone will tell you that. I think as you get more senior, like people don't really tell you what you should be doing. They, they just grade you based on what you've done and whether it's important. And this is like really confusing transition where you go from like knowing exactly what to do and how you're graded to like getting graded basically based on the perception of whether the work you're doing is important or not. And often that perception takes months or, or sometimes years to actually like flit its way to you. So it, it can be like quite a confusing moment. And I think that's like what leadership is, is like no one's telling you quite what to do, but they're still grading you on what you've done. And it's like kind of like a, a frustrating moment to figure out like, wh- how is this reasonable? And whether it's reasonable or not, it's like, it, it's real. And so it started thinking about like what are ways that folks that I've seen who are really talented, like get stuck when they try to make this transition to setting their own goals. And a few of them that were really important to me is that I first think about this idea of like snacking and Hunter Walk actually has like a, a great article about this that, that I kind of took this idea from. But often when you don't know what to work on, you'll start working on stuff that just feels impactful. And you often stuff that you used to be really good at or that used to be really impactful, but may, may no longer be that impactful. And so good examples could be um, going to incident reviews and like, you know, like, uh, being very critical of the proposals of like how we're going to fix problems. This might feel really good and it might feel productive, but like probably you're only pissing off all of your peers. You're not actually accomplishing something like particularly noble. And so, but some, some folks will like hide in that work because it just, it feels rewarding. Another good example from my own personal experience, thinking about my last job at Stripe is I was, you know, a little bit frustrated with a few things is like, you know what I'll do? Um, I'll start like a manager book club and we'll like read some books and like, we'll, we'll invest in like the, the leadership of tomorrow. And, you know, like it felt successful. I spun up a book club, got the book. Like we all started reading it. We talked about it, but it's like, did this address any of the problems I was supposed to be fixing? Like, absolutely not. And so I think there's kind of like, well, actually this is a long-term project, but no, I, I was just doing something that like made me feel better in the moment. And I think it's, it's easy to, to fall into that. It's very comfortable. And there's a pre-built narrative about why it's the right thing to do. But the narrative is sort of like obviously wrong to the people evaluating you. And you, you have to like recognize when you're like hiding in that, that moment. Another one that I think about is preening. And so there's a lot of work that is high status below impact. Um, the kind of the incident reviews are a, a great example of that from my last example, where simply being present and having a loud voice will in some companies be perceived as high status and high impact. But, but as you look at like whether that your voice is being listened to, whether it's actually changing what people do, you can often see that it's like very low impact. Typically going and being negative is perceived as like high status, like no matter where you are. And so I think it's important as once you get into senior leadership to be thoughtful about where you actually are negative, because you can go into a product planning meeting and like shoot down all those ideas and you'll be like, oh, this is a real leader, not letting us get away with like sloppy product thinking. But if you just stop them from moving forward, all you've done is like sabotage, like you actually haven't helped. 
And so making sure you're not doing work that um, makes you feel or makes you look like you're high status or important, but the actual like, consequences are like the business is slower, you can't ship things, and you've like demotivated the, the people you need to actually be leading. And the last one I, I've ta- thought about a lot is the idea of chasing ghosts. And as you go um, talk to folks, particularly from other companies who come into one, they tend to bring the number one problem they had. They often like, like superimpose it on the new company they've joined. And particularly if you are someone from like a Facebook, a, a Google, an Apple, the problems you have at a you know, 10, 100 person company, like 100,000 person company versus um, the company, the problems you have, like an intercom where you have like hundreds of people or, or a, a com where you have like 150, 200 people, just like radically different. Like you have the same like data locality problems at both companies, but like at one company you might just be like, you know what, we're just like not going to solve this for a couple of years. Or at, at an Apple, you might, you know, literally have to solve it like immediately. And so just making sure you aren't solving problems that actually exist. And I think something that happens is um, for senior leaders who come from a large company and come to a, the new company in, a, in an even more senior leadership role, like one of the ways to be perceived as a leader is to have like conviction around where the problems are. And this is where I see folks sometimes like really waste like a ton of their own and their org's time by chasing after things that they know were a huge problem previously and just assuming they still are when in fact like the, the, the real problem is usually at a small company like something that is like nominally quite simple but in practice like quite hard to solve for, for whatever reason. Yeah, a lot of that resonates. Uh, I think I've, I've been guilty of probably all of those things. <laughs> Me too. Before Intercom, I, I came from Amazon and there's certain, I certainly had to kind of deprogram myself to not try to solve Amazon problems at Intercom. And, you know, one of the areas I work in is AWS cost management and snacking there. It's so easy. <laughs> you can, you can save a few dollars here and there. And, you know, it's real. The money is real, but it's not really impactful. I and mean, it's certainly not like a, a leadership staff type challenge to go in and shut down a few unused EBS volumes or whatever. It's also, it's very easy to be critical on the AWS cost management, where like, oh, like the database team isn't prioritizing saving saving the money on these database instances or something, where, where you're absolutely right, but it still like might not be the right thing for them to do. But by accusing them of it, you claim the moral high ground very quickly and, and are perceived as like the, the, the leader, even if you're wrong. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with Intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service. And it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. 
We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right? And see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. So, we've gone through a few things we shouldn't do as, as staff and staff plus engineers. What's the work that people should be actively seeking out to do or the type of work that uh, they should be going after? Yeah, I think this depends a little bit on the the archetype that your company actually wants from you. I think one of the core challenges is decoupling what you want to do, what the company actually values from you, and really centering um, the majority of your work on what the company values. And if there's certain things that are very important to you that the company doesn't value, then you can still do that work, but you shouldn't be surprised when the company doesn't value it. And so don't set yourself up where where the company needs to value team building or investing in leadership or or mentorship. And you convince yourself that they're going to value it because you care about it. 99% of the time, the company knows what it values. And even if you do a great job around mentorship, it still will not value mentorship. And I think you still might want to invest there, but you shouldn't invest there thinking that you'll change the company's structure and value systems. Probably it won't. You can still do it, but like own it, own the choice. Don't don't get upset later when the company doesn't value it if they didn't value it to begin with. So I think that's like the the first idea is like where is there like room to actually do work? Like mentorship, no one's doing mentorship. There, there might be a lot of room to do it. And attention, like the company actually cares about something. And so noticing those moments, and that's where the biggest opportunity for someone in the leadership role, the staff role, to actually do something really impactful. And so a good example of something that happened at Stripe that happened at, I think, every company is that there's a moment when management goes from, ah, oh, managers are kind of useless to like, oh, I wish we had like really great managers. We needed them a long time ago. And so that moment when all of a sudden this leadership, all of a sudden like mentoring, all of a sudden like cross-functional kind of investment coordination goes from being like unvalued to valued. All of a sudden there's like a ton of high value work because the attention just showed up. And the, the room to do the work has been there um, for a long time, but the attention, the agreement that this is actually the thing to be focused on didn't exist. And so making sure that you actually build that agreement or just fail at building it and don't do it until there, there actually is the, the, the room and attention, that's the first thing I think about. And it's not just management, right? Like reliability is another one where at a lot of companies like, hey, like we're the way we're deploying is pushing a lot of bad features to our users that don't work and are, are, we're learning about problems in production from our users. How can we fix it? You can push on that, but until the company like actually thinks that's a problem, it's, it's extremely hard to make progress on it. Infrastructure costs, like AWS costs are another great one where like many companies are like, you know, our infrastructure costs don't matter at all. They don't matter at all. They don't matter at all. Then all of a sudden like this moment switches and it's like urgent panic. Like why are we spending so much money on, on AWS? And if you do the work at the wrong time, it's, it's really hard to get the buy-in from other teams because like leadership doesn't care. But then there's this like subtle moment where something switches. Um, maybe you're trying to be profitable to go public. Maybe the amount you're spending like catches the eye of your CFO. Like something will happen where all of a sudden there's a ton of energy and, and attention. And like noticing those moments is, is, is really core. Um, a few of the other things that I think are, are worth kind of like pulling out are first kind of investing in the org around you. Like if you're not sure what to do, like figuring out how to grow other folks so that you're not the only person able to do something. 
I'm like, if you list, like, what are the things that only you can do? And then figure out how can I get one other person who can do all of those over the next year? Like that's incredibly high impact work. Often folks will do really great work, like a great like design doc or something, but there's a few things that are that are wrong, or if you can just give them some advice early on, they can save like weeks or months of time to figuring out how to like bring your experience and kind of share it with other folks in a way that's like supportive and, and enriching and growing of them, I think is, is really powerful. Often you'll find projects where you personally, if you're responsible for something, you can just like finish it and move on to something else. But the person who's responsible for something might be like finishing a migration. Like maybe they've been trying to move over from Postgres to Postgres Aurora for the last like year and they just can't get like four things moved over for some reason where like if you just put like your thumb down on it a little bit, like you can help them finish that in like a week where if they try to do it themselves, they might never be able to finish it because they just can't get someone to listen and actually like do a relatively small amount of work to actually make the shift. And then finally, I think, what are the things that literally no one else at the company can do? And so, for example, you, you might find that um, that you actually don't have a strategy for your infrastructure group, or you might be missing a strategy for one of the different product sections. And probably a number of folks will agree with that, but like they just won't have the organizational trust to actually fix the problem. And so I think this is one of the interesting spots where you, as you move into the staff and the leadership role, are able to address certain problems that even if others can see it, they just can't make progress on. So one last area to dive into in the book is like, there's lots of great advice for progression. Um, and one thing that jumped out to me and, and my producer was the ideas you shared around promotion packets. Uh, and it's this stuff is useful not, and not just for engineers or not just people looking to move the staff. So w- why did you include this in the book? Yeah, I, I think... Um... <laughs> In the best case, like you have a great manager who knows like what you need to do to get promoted and will just support you um, and will give you clear feedback and will be there from the start of your journey to like staff to, through the completion of that. But like m- most people don't have the best case in some way, like the, your manager might get promoted out of the role they're in where all of a sudden you're almost promoted to staff. You get a new manager and you're like, ah, I'm almost there. And they're like, well, actually, I don't see any of that. And you like lose like a couple of years in, in that promotion cycle or you get acquired um, or your manager and you have a falling out and you switch companies and you like start kind of like rebuilding. And so that's just these are just like problems that could happen with you and your manager. Right. It could be a lot of companies like when I was at Uber, they, had, they used to be senior than staff. Then all of a sudden they had like senior one and senior two and then staff. And so people who thought they were going to get promoted to staff in like, you know, like six months, all of a sudden it took them like four years to get promoted to staff because they had to get promoted from like senior one to senior two and then from senior two to staff. And so like all these things can happen that can get you derailed. And again, I'm going back to this idea that as a leadership level, um, the folks who will give you the clear direction start disappearing because like no one actually quite knows the clear direction to give you. And the promotion packet's a way to actually help navigate the the confusion and the ambiguity and the the change that happens. And so I think the the core of it is write the promotion packet for yourself, run it, like talk through it with some of your peers, um, talk through it with some folks who are already at the staff level. Talk through it with a manager, your manager, whoever that might be, and just like use it to actually focus the feedback you're getting. So, for example, a lot of times someone's about to get to staff level, but they keep getting rejected because like, oh, is the impact of their work large enough? Or, well, the project they did is great, but we need to see it run for like a year in production to know if it's actually stable or not. 
and, and these like rules of thumb like show up from nowhere like this isn't in the ladder like how am i supposed to know that and you can again like be upset that you're getting kind of randomly surprised by these things but what i found is you can also like usually uncover them like ahead of time by using this promotion packet strategy sharing the promo promo packet pretty widely with your manager i'm getting their feedback sharing it with your manager manager if you do like a skip level if you take ownership of it and write the packet get feedback on it you'll be able to figure out where the gaps are. Um, if you don't, like you'll often get surprised for, for years sometimes and you can be frustrated about it. But if you want to be a leader, then a big part of it is like taking ownership yourself. Cool. So the areas that people should be looking at when when creating their packets, when, when trying to move to staff, which ones do you think are important? I think what, one thing that I tend to try to de-emphasize is the mythical staff project. <laughs> it's like, you know, you just have to achieve this one piece of work and suddenly your staff. And, and in practice, I think that that doesn't really work, but it's easy for people to kind of get focused on that sort of stuff. I don't know if you agree with that, but also like what areas do you think people should be focusing on if they're looking to write this packet, get the staff? First, the, the staff project, I think, is a, a really important question. So I think there is a myth, essentially, that the, the staff project is the most important project. Um, and there are, you know, some people out there who are repeating this myth and believe it really strongly. But as I talk to more and more staff engineers, the majority of folks I spoke, spoke to with didn't have a staff project. And so um, I think this is a case where the promotion packet is actually really powerful because someone will tell you, like, actually, to get promoted, you need to do a staff project. But as you run this promo packet with a few other people, like the majority of them will either say like, actually, most people don't have promo, don't have a staff engineer project at all. Um, or they're like, well, I actually never did that. And it helps you like understand what's real because there, there are these just kind of ideas, these like quips that people share to try to explain why people can't get the staff that are, that are often just like wrong. And so I think the staff engineer or the staff project one in some companies, though, um, they, they, they really do center on this idea. And so also it's like figuring out not like what should be true or what's true on average. It's like what's true for your specific company. When I talked to Ritu Vincent at, about Dropbox, like Dropbox really did center on this idea of having a staff project. So no matter what the norm is, like knowing what's true for your company is more important than knowing what the norm is. And so the packet, great way to figure that out. Again, like... Every company is a little bit different. So I think the value of the promo packet is like start by figuring out what your company actually cares about. Don't worry too much about what you think they should care about or what the norm is. But figuring out work that you're doing that's really valuable, that is easy to miss, is one of the things I think the promo packet can be very helpful for. Um, there can be stuff that you're doing um, supporting other users, supporting like folks at the company that your manager just never sees. If your manager is like working on this packet like alone, um, we'll, we'll miss it. And so like making sure there's visibility for work that you're doing, cross-functional work's easy to miss, pulling in um, how you've solved some of the problems. Like I think there's definitely ways to kind of claim impact. And in fact, at companies are very like focused on impact for kind of staff promotions. You'll find like four people who are like, oh, I shipped this one project. And you're like, well, what actually happened here? It, all four of you didn't lead this project and it can be like really confusing. And you'll often like in these promotion, like calibration meetings, you'll have like three managers arguing about who did what on a given important project, none of whom were directly involved in the project. And so the, the packets can be great at clarifying who actually did what work and which is super important. 
And, and yeah, I think that that's really what I want to say there. But I think another another area that I think often like the staff ladder has that can be pretty confusing is like mentorship. So it's like, hey, you have to mentor, you know, like a decent number of folks coming up. Um, but I've been at companies where um, it came out in the calibration sessions that basically folks who are getting mentored felt quite negative about the experience, but that the person who was mentoring was like, well, I need to do some mentorship to get promoted. I will accomplish some mentorship. And they sort of like push this like advice on someone else and then get promoted for it. And so I think having the promo pack is a great way to one, not do that to someone because you can actually make sure like your manager or someone is like getting the feedback from the people that you're mentoring that it's actually positive. But if you are doing it, the promo pack, it's a great way to like discover that where it's like, I thought I was doing this great job mentoring, but actually what, what I was doing was like taking advantage of someone to create the perception of mentoring to get promoted. And I didn't actually do something valuable. Right. So before we finish up, one question we like to ask people on the podcast, if there's somebody in the industry that you aspire to or are inspired by? That's a great, that's a great question. So in terms of like who I aspire to be, like, I, I don't, I don't think I know that one. Just so many folks kind of creating their own paths that I, I wouldn't want to, um, I, I really want to do my own kind of thing long-term. And I think I am grateful for my time at Stripe. I learned like such a tremendous amount there. I learned so much at Uber. I've learned so much um, pretty quickly at, at Calm, and, but there's still so much more for me to learn. And there's like the, the writing component, like, dude, I, I don't know if everyone should spend time writing, but for me, it's been a great way to like solidify what, what I've learned re- relatively quickly. Think, thinking about folks who are inspirational, probably the thing that's been most impactful for me is right before I started my job um, at Calm, I put together this learning circle. We meet every two weeks and there's a bunch of folks who are VPs of engineering, a bunch of folks who are CTOs. And we just talk about the challenges that are facing us and what's top of mind. And that group has just been incredibly helpful for me. And something that I've learned from them is just that the problems that feel unique are like pretty uniform. Like everyone is dealing with the same set of problems over time. That could be hiring. That could be like figuring out how to partner successfully with different functions. That could be strategy that could be like, how do you actually let folks go in a small company? It's really difficult. And that's like a, a topic that comes up. So there, everyone in that that group has been kind of life-changing to spend time with. But really, if you don't have a leadership circle, a place to find a community, like that, that was something I would hugely recommend to like everyone to figure out how to build that. And I do think people just are sort of desperate for kind of learning circles. So if you don't have something like that, I think what a lot of folks do is they just reflect on not having it for, for years. But if you reach out to 15 people who are doing a similar role and just suggest like a meeting every every couple of weeks at a certain time, particularly while we're mostly working from home, um, surprisingly easy to do and, and really impactful. Awesome. Lastly, where can our listeners go to keep up with you and your work? Yeah. So the, the two places that I would recommend folks go is that if you're interested in the staff engineering um, idea, like what, what should we actually do to be great staff engineers, just come to staffeng.com. And then also I've been a longtime blogger with a couple of like one to two year gaps in, in between for a little bit more than a decade now over on my blog, Irrational Exuberance. Great. Thank you so much for being on the show, Will. It's been great talking with you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been been fantastic. And I hope to be back with another book in like three, three to five years. Great. We'll talk to you then. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed our conversation with Will Larson. 
If you did, we'd love you to give us a review. It helps like-minded people find their way to our content. We'll be back next week with another great episode of Scale by Intercom for you. We hope you'll join us. This is Inside Intercom. Inside Intercom.